Praise God. We've been looking at some of those mentioned in the Hall of Faith, and that was a story we just watched about Samuel, who had faith. Uh, We read last week how he heard the voice of God and obeyed it even as a young child. Uh, In this case, he was willing to believe what God said and saw about the future of a king for the nation of Israel, even when his entire culture was going the opposite direction. He was willing to see things as God saw it. And yet, nonetheless, God was able to still accomplish, eventually, his purpose for the nation of Israel, even when his own people were rebelling against him. And I always like that story where God's like, fine, we'll give him a king. Well, secretly, it's like God knows the whole time. Well, eventually, my own son will be their king and reign on the throne of David for all of eternity. And so it's kind of like he's playing the long con. Like, yeah, sure, we'll let him do their little thing for a little while. But eventually, I'm still going to reign and rule over my own people. Uh, So today, uh, we're going to continue that story of Samuel and go into a different part, a two-part sermon. We won't do both parts today. But uh, don't worry, don't worry. So uh, I want to pick up in 1 Samuel 16.1. And so we had just seen in that video that God eventually rejects Saul as king. And God intends on raising up someone that would be a man after his own heart. And so let's uh, pick this up, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about me, hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice And I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. And so God is already planning on raising up another king from among Jesse's sons. So verse 4, Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons invited them uh, and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And so Samuel is looking with his human eyes, with his natural worldly wisdom, his own thinking, and thinking this is obviously going to be the one that God is going to raise up as king over Israel. That he's still thinking that way. That that was the kind of person that Saul was. He actually stood head and shoulders above the rest of the nation. He was this kind of majestic and giant man. And so like, kind of made sense. That was the kind of king that you might want. Verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, For I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so what's interesting here, and this is true in many, many instances throughout uh, the scriptures and across reality and eternity, is that the way God sees things are different 
than the way that we see things. The way that we would perceive reality is different than what God is actually doing and accomplishing. The things that God says he's going to do sometimes seem to be the opposite of what we are presently experiencing. And yet, God is still going to bring to pass the things that he plans to bring to pass. And so when it comes to raising up a king, he says you can't judge a person by the way they look on the outside. God judges a person according to their heart, according to their character. And so that's why he's going to pick someone different than what would appear to be the best option. And so then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shemaiah. But Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons that you have? And so even Jesse did not consider his eighth son to be a reasonable option, right? That, that he didn't even think he deserved to be on the list of possibilities. And I would imagine that this eighth son probably felt the same way about himself. I don't imagine his ego was so large that he's like, I'm obviously going to be the next one in charge of this kingdom. And so Jesse says, there's still the youngest, he replied. But he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goat, the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, This is the one. Anoint him. And so David stood there among his brothers. Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And then Samuel returned to Ramah. And so in this story, obviously we see that God doesn't look at the rest of the world the way that we may first perceive it. That the way God looks at reality is different than the way we look at reality. And we need to, by faith, see things the way that God sees them to see things as God sees them, that we would agree with his perception, that we would agree with what he calls right and good and just, that we would see our future based on what he has proclaimed about it rather than what it presently looks like based on the trend and what our extrapolation would predict. And Hebrews 11, this whole concept of faith, rests on this idea. I want to go back to Hebrews 11, uh, verses 1 to 3. So Everett, put that up on the screen for us. It says this, Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. And previously we've talked about faith, that faith is just believing what God says. It's trusting the things that he says. And in this case, it's telling us that faith would be believing in things, it's evidence of things that we don't presently see before us. And so believing what God says means believing something that you don't yet see in front of you, that it has not yet been revealed as reality. But nonetheless, we have confidence and hope and assurance that what God says will indeed come to pass. Verse 2, he says, uh, through faith, the people in the days of old 
earned a good reputation, right? That we are commended, we are made righteous by our faith in what God has done for us. And it's the same way it was back then. That it, we can't come to God based on our own good works and our own efforts and claim that we are, well, I'm a good person on my own merit. No, once again, we, as all time has been, right, we became righteous, we became right with God as a result of our trusting what God has done for us. But check out verse 3. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, at God's words. That what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. And so what's interesting is when it comes to faith, the entire visible universe, which is a little bit of a play on words, the visible universe with the distance of starlight and the time it takes to travel to us, is a scientific concept, right? But what this is talking about here is that all of the things that you see that are visible were once invisible. And God simply spoke it. And you might be like, but God, there is no light. What do you mean, let there be light? And it was so. It just came to be. Everything God created was made from unseen things. And we have so much confidence in the things that we can see and measure and weigh. And we're like, well, no, but this is, this is the reality in front of me, God. I've got my five senses. This is what I believe in. I believe the things that I can see. And yet, everything that you have ever seen, everything that has ever been seen by human eyes was made from the invisible. And so if we can trust with so much confidence the things that we see, the things that we experience, and those things came into existence by God who spoke them out of nothing, then we can trust that when he speaks about uncertain things, unseen things, things that have yet to come to pass, that we can trust him because it will come into existence. That what God speaks is the truth. And what God claims is something that we should believe. All of the universe and all of the Hebrews 11 list of people that have experienced the promises of God are evidence for us to be confident in the things that God says that we have greater assurance than they had because we have more history. We have more data points in which we see over and over and over again, God is one who can be trusted. That God is one who can be relied upon that when he speaks, it is so, even when we don't see. And so by faith, we should see things as God sees them. In Romans 8.24, this is the ESV, Paul says this, uh, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? That Paul's playing with this idea of hope, and I could argue it's connected to the idea of faith. And Paul is saying that who hopes for what he sees? And that what we see right now, that's not something that we would hope for. That's not really hope. That faith must exist in the gap between what things look like now and what God has said they will be. That faith will always have a degree of discomfort with it. It's never going to be exactly the way God says it until the end comes and he makes all things right. And so while we're here on the earth, 
we're always going to have, even though we have confidence and assurance of the things hoped for, right, that there's still always going to be a degree of uncomfortability. They're like, God, why can't you just show me and tell me everything right now? Like, why can't you just show me tomorrow right now so I can just, you know, it'd be way easier for me, way more comfortable for me to believe you if I just had all of it before me in this moment. But that's not the way it works. That we will always have a degree of discomfort because what we see and what God says requires faith to trust him, to believe that what he says is true. And what's interesting is God, we know from Hebrews 11, is pleased by faith. And so while we might be displeased, being like, God, just just show it to me now, because it's too hard for me to just always believe you and to not yet see the thing that you're saying. But the whole time while we are unsettled, God is greatly pleased when we believe him, when we believe the things that he says, that there's a gap between what we see and what we hope for, and faith is the thing that fills that gap. And it's not that we are a gullible people that just believes whatever is said, right? But we have a God who is reliable, is faithful, one whom we can place our trust because every promise that he has made has come to pass. And so it's not like we're boasting in our great faith. No, no, no. We're boasting in the God who is forever true and faithful. And so faith always will have a gap between what is presently occurring and what we are hoping for. Faith is the thing that fills that gap. And what's interesting about this verse, obviously I'm reading from the middle of Paul's many, many thoughts, that it's hard to just pull a snippet out of Paul's writings. But Paul actually in this passage will go to uh, verse 21 in the New Living Translation, that he's actually talking about this creation, this visible creation that came from the unseen. And creation itself has hope, has this faith of this future coming, this glorification that God has said will happen. So check this out, verse 21. The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. And so creation is looking forward to the day in which it's glorified and no longer subjected to futility. And we are looking forward to the day in which we no longer have our bodies in this way that are plagued with sin, that have desires that are contrary and at war with our spirit, right? That we're looking forward to the same day. And we have this hope for this day. But it's not as though we have this hope vainly and without any amount of evidence that God has given us. Because Paul said, no, that we have the Holy Spirit as a foretaste of future glory. That God gives us reason to believe. That the Holy Spirit dwelling in you is part of the reason that you can have hope for your future. Verse 24. Let's see. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. 
right? That, that's the same idea. Like, who hopes for what he sees, for what he has? Verse 25, but if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently for it. And so we have this hope with good reason, based on what God has promised and all of the promises that he's already kept, that we and all of creation, the seen creation, looks forward to this future day in which God glorifies and makes all things new and gives us new bodies. And while we wait, we do it with patience. While we have right this faith waiting to see this thing that is yet to come, we do it with confidence because we know who God is and what he's done. We are able to see, we are willing to by faith see things as God sees them. Right? We're willing to look forward to eternity with what he has revealed to us and trust the things that he says because he's done this time and time again. In fact, Isaiah 46, verse uh, 9, we'll start at. This is God speaking in the Old Testament through the prophet. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That God is the one who knows the end from the beginning. And some of that he lets his people know about, right? Through the scriptures, through the promises, through the prophets, right? That God reveals, God declares, he proclaims that end from the beginning. And so in God's case, he sees the end already. And in our case, we must believe the things that he says about what he sees. We must have faith to believe and see as God already sees. And so what he has revealed to us, which is in partiality, it's not complete. We don't know everything about our future, but we can trust him with our tomorrow. But what he has revealed, what he has declared, we can trust by faith because of who he is and every promise he's made has come to pass. That what he declares will stand, that what he says he, it will be accomplished. He will accomplish all that he purposes, right? Just like him speaking creation into existence, when he speaks about our future, about the future day of the coming king of G Jesus, right? Establishing his kingdom and glorifying the world, the day of the Lord and all of that, we can believe him and have confidence in what he says. And God is one who he seems to take pleasure in planning surprises, like he's pleased by our faith and he seems to enjoy like having these little like hints and just like little breadcrumb trails that he's leading us along in which he gives us clues about this future gift and blessing that he has for us. And in case in point, we stand a couple thousand years beyond Jesus's death, burial and resurrection. But for most of human history, they were looking forward to that day. And they weren't fully sure of what it was going to look like. And yet God, with joy, was planning salvation for humanity before he even spoke our universe into existence. That he was, I think, joyfully and lovingly 
planning your rescue. And he didn't want to spoil the surprise. That he plans this surprise and, and is waiting for that day and, and looking forward to it. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says this, The wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. Right? And he's speaking about salvation in this case, but you could include a portion of glorification that's yet to come. Verse 8, But the rulers of this world have not understood it. When Jesus was being brought to the cross to die, it looked one way. The rulers and the principalities and the powers, they perceived what was taking place one way, but that was not what God was doing. It looked like defeat. It looked like the destruction of the Son of God, and yet what was taking place as God saw it, and as reality actually was, was that the Son of God was rescuing us in that moment. He was going to reign victoriously over the enemy. All right, that he was going to be the firstborn among many, that he was going to bring many sons and daughters to glory. That what looked one way, the death of the son, the, the most atrocious act in human history in which we as humans killed God, was actually God accomplishing his greatest victory. Right? And, and so that's what Paul says. If the rulers of this world had understood this, right, their perceptions, what, they, what seemed to be the case was not reality. He says they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. But Paul continues. That is what the scripture means when they say, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That when it came to salvation, when it was yet to be, no one had seen these things, but yet God had planned it from before the world began. No one could imagine how wonderful a gift salvation was going to be. And yet God was lovingly preparing this for the people that would one day love him in return. That God, I imagine, was joyfully right, just dropping hints throughout human history, throughout the scriptures and the prophets, pointing to this gift of salvation that they would one day experience. And we're on the other end of that. And so we get to see part of God's nature in what was previously hidden, what was previously mysterious, has now been revealed. And that's what Paul says in verse 10. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his Spirit, for his Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. Okay, what was previously hidden is now revealed to us. And God still has yet to be revealed things in our future, right? The coming of Jesus again, in which all things will be made right, in which all of our suffering will not be worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And right, and we're stuck here and we're like, but God, like this suffering, I don't enjoy it and it doesn't feel victorious and I don't understand what you're doing. And that's right. It doesn't make sense. Everything that we see doesn't seem to make sense to us if we have a limited scope and we're not eternally minded. But if we see things God's way, we'll realize what he's doing in our lives is eternally glorious. 
and we can trust him. Just as the people of old were commended for their faith and trusting in the future Messiah that was going to come and rescue them. We can trust God about our future and the things that he has already declared are true. So, God makes promises and they come to pass. This is part of the reason why we have confidence. In Habakkuk 2 verse 3, in the Old Testament, right, one of his prophets, he says, this vision is for a future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. And so this, is, this word seems is what I want us to think about, right? What seems to be one way was not reality. For Samuel anointing David, what seemed to make sense in human terms and wisdom was not actually what God was doing. That what seems to be the case in our mind and in our eyes is not the way that God sees it. That's often not the case, right? And so we must be willing to see things as God sees it, as God proclaims it, and recognize oftentimes it will seem one way, but we should wait patiently because God is reliable and what he says will surely take place. Similarly, this is expressed in the New Testament in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. He says, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. Right? It, it looks like God's being slow. Where is his coming? Where is his kingdom? Why hasn't his kingdom been established yet? And some people are even going to think, like, no, God's he's never coming. Like, he's never going to come. I don't understand. It's been forever. He's not going to come. Some people will come to that conclusion based off of what they see. But that's not reality. God isn't really being slow. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to perish or to be destroyed. But he wants all people, everyone, to repent and experience life. And so when it comes to his second coming, right, we can trust him about the future. We can trust him about the timing of this event. That part of his patience is, is rooted in his love for humanity in giving people more opportunity, more time to repent and experience the life and the forgiveness and the freedom that he offers us. And so the things that God promises eventually come to pass. That another thing to consider is that God does things that oftentimes seems impossible. He says this in Zechariah 8.6. This is about these promised blessings over the city of Jerusalem. And he said this to, uh, through the prophet. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. All this may seem impossible to you now. A small remnant of God's people. Is it impossible for me? Says the Lord of heaven's armies. All right, and so what it looks like to us on the outside, when we judge it superficially, when we measure it, when we weigh it, when we look at what can be seen, it's like, nope, God, you're not going to be able to do this one. This seems impossible to me. And this is where God is most glorified. When we believe him and what looks impossible, but what he's spoken is going to come to pass and we trust him and what he says. Right? God is pleased by that kind of faith. And I realize, yes, I'm uncomfortable with having to walk by faith and not by sight. It would be so much easier if I could just see immediately the things that God promises. 
but we don't need to doubt. It will surely come to pass. The Lord is able to do things that seem impossible to us. Another area that I want us to consider of these false perceptions that we have is even in the gathering of the body of believers. That there are many instances in in church and in the family of God broadly in which it might seem like, oh no, like I'm not really all that important, or I don't really fit in, or I don't really feel like I belong in church, I'm just going to do my Jesus thing, me and him. Right? Like oftentimes it may seem one way of like, oh, no, it's all about this person and their gift or what they're, like I'm just in the background, you know, who, who even needs me? But that's not reality, just as we saw with Samuel and David. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? What Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying here, sometimes in our church family life, there will be moments in which you feel, in which it looks like, in which it seems as though like, no, I'm not really all that important. My giftings, they're not that great. You know, other people are so important, so wonderful, but look at me, like, I'm not even that great of a Christian. I keep stumbling and screwing up. Like, God doesn't need me. I'm not really a part of the body. And it might seem that way. All signals might be telling you that, but that is not the case. That you are a part of the body, a necessary part of the body. That's where he goes next. Uh, Verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if the whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. And so part of God's design, his purpose for the church and the local church that you're a part of, is that God has placed you where he wants you for the sake of your growing in gifts and in faith, that God has placed you where he's called you. It's by his design and his purpose that God loves you and has called you to that. And it might sometimes feel like, no, like maybe I'll just do just me and my Jesus time and I don't need to be a part of a church. But the Holy Spirit is saying, how strange it would be if an entire body was just made of one part, that, that's strange to God. That's peculiar. That's not what God has called us to. Verse 20, yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can never say to the feet, I don't need you. That based on what it feels like, based on what it looks like, you might about yourself feel that you're not needed. Or you might feel about other people of like, no, I just kind of want to hang out with my one clique of friends in the church, but I don't really need those believers, or I don't need them in my life, or I don't want them. Like, but no, no, no. You don't get to say that you yourself are not needed. 
in the church of God. You don't get to say that other people aren't needed in the family of God, right? David was excluded, left in the sheepfold, wasn't even summoned, but yet he was necessary. He was needed for the plan and purpose of God, being the ancestor through whom the Messiah would come, right? You are needed even when you feel contrary to that. We must, by faith, see as God sees. Verse 22, in fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. I just want to acknowledge, like God through the scriptures is speaking to us. He's saying it's normal to feel this way sometimes. It's normal to feel unimportant in the family of God. It's normal to feel unnecessary or unwanted. But that's not what we should believe about ourselves or about others, right? We are necessary to one another. And it turns out that those who we might think were the least important will be the most necessary. Let's see. In fact, Everett, let's jump down to Matthew 19, 29. This is Jesus speaking, encouraging his disciples who are living as poor traveling ministers with Christ right? The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Many of them have given up businesses and income and, right, their job as a tax collector or a fisherman. They've left all that they've had to follow Jesus. And they're like, but Jesus, this doesn't really seem like this is the kingdom of God on display here, right? Like, this doesn't really look like we're accomplishing that much. We're just kind of a bunch of poor people traveling around town to town. Is this really what it's all about? And this is what Jesus tells them in Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. All right, that what seemed to be the, the most ragtag crew of people, the least influential group that... 2,000 years ago, you never would have predicted like, oh, it's, it's their ministry and their work that's going to have the most impact throughout human history and for all of eternity. You never would have guessed. But yet what reality was saying and what Jesus is saying is that when Christ is glorified, when his kingdom is revealed, they will receive a hundredfold and eternal life. In verse 30, he says this, but many who are the greatest now will be the least important then. And those who seem the least important now will be the greatest then. And so we must be a people who by faith sees as God sees. Many things will seem to be true based off of our human perception and our human wisdom. And we could build our whole lives and our own kingdoms based on what we think reality and life is all about. But what we must be willing to do is for the sake of the Lord, give him our lives and our hearts and follow him and aim to please him with all that we are. And it might seem like we're not really accomplishing that much in the kingdom of God. Like, it's like, God, we're just like, you know, a little ragtag crew here. But God can do what seems to be impossible with a remnant. Right? God can do mighty things. And those who seem the least important 
will one day be glorified and we'll be so surprised and taken back. Like, God, I can't believe the work that you accomplished through them that was eternally valuable, incredibly glorified for all of eternity. And yet what it looked like on the outside was that it wasn't very important, that they were the least on the earth and that they weren't accomplishing much. And so I want to encourage us. We must have faith to believe the things that God says. We have confidence in what he's already done in our past, but that at one time too was hidden in a mystery and not yet revealed. And we can trust him with our future, right? That, that he one day will return, not just as the lamb, but as the lion, that he will be glorified and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord, that throughout human history, you repeatedly use the least of these, that you use people like Gideon, you use people like David that don't seem to be of much importance, Father God. But you are most glorified when you use those who appear foolish to this world. You are most glorified when you use those who appear weak according to this world. And Lord, we want to be a people who humble ourselves and experience your grace and are willing to walk in obedience in the steps that you've ordained for us, Father God. Lord, we want to be a people who can trust you with our tomorrow, that we wouldn't be full of anxiety and worry all about it. Lord, I do honestly say, I wish you told us more. I wish you showed us more. But I know, God, that you are pleased by faith. And you have been faithful. And so we have confidence, we have patience now as we wait to see the things that you've promised come to pass. Lord, let your people be bold. Let your people be confident. Let your people be willing to to set aside their own lives and their own kingdoms in pursuit of what you have called them to in pursuit of greater things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.